Okay, y'all. Uh, does it? It sounds a little bit quieter in here as you guys are talking. I think it's because they installed this soundproofing in the room. So grateful, uh, grateful for that. So over the course of this summer, you guys know we've been talking about how, as humans, uh, as humans, we all have this desire to connect with the transcendent, right? We all have this desire to be part of something that is bigger than ourselves. But it's something that we often struggle with. And the disciples, the people that Jesus spent all of his time with, they struggled with this too. And so they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, teach us to pray. Lord, how do we pray? Which is an imminently practical question. Just tell us what to do. And for once, Jesus gives them a very practical answer, right? No riddles, no parables. He just says, pray like this. And what he does is he gives them what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And he gives it to them as, as a tool, right? as a tool for engaging with God, with the transcendent, for connecting uh, with something bigger than themselves. And what we've done this, this summer is we've been unpacking that prayer, and what we've seen is that this prayer is well-fitted to life as it actually is. That it speaks to our experience of life as it is. The conditions on the ground, so to speak. We've talked about how the Lord's Prayer speaks to our wants, our desires, how it calls us to bring those to God. It speaks to us in the places that we are hurt by others and hurt others when we talk about forgiveness and being forgiven. It teaches us how to wrestle with the decisions that we are making in life on an ongoing basis when we pray, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. It's a tool to be used, and it's, it's like that utility tool. Right? It's like a hammer or a, or a drill. Or in our family, it's, um, it's the little spatula right, in the kitchen that you can like, use to stir the eggs, you can use to mix spices in, to frost the cake, to mix jam into the Greek yogurt so the kids will actually eat it. You know? It's like it just does everything. That's the Lord's Prayer. It's so practical for our everyday lives. And then we get to these last petitions from this week. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Okay. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Uh, those, those petitions, that petition, it feels so far away from our daily context, doesn't it? It's like the, the, the grapefruit spoon in the kitchen. Like those tools that only have one very specific use that you never actually use it for. Does anyone ever have? No, no one has any of those. Okay, right? When, when we read these petitions, it, they can feel so antiquated, so disconnected from the way that we think about our daily lives and context. It doesn't fit in 21st century life. But, but this petition, Lord, lead us not to temptation, deliver us from evil, it's far more practical than we, than we realize. But to understand that, what we're going to unpack is the context of these petitions. So we're going to talk about the context of the position. We're going to talk petition. We're going to talk about the cry of the petition. What is in our hearts that it that it's amplifying, that it's teaching us to bring to the Lord. And then we're going to talk about the confidence that we can have in these prayers being answered as we bring them to God. So the context of the petition, uh, the cry of the petition, and our confidence in having those petitions answered. So I'm going to invite Julie, uh, Julie Gilpin to come up, and Julie is going to read for us out of Matthew 6, uh, the Lord's Prayer. So it'll be up behind us on the screen. If you have your Bible, you can flip there and uh, follow along. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, we pray, Lord, that as we unpack it this morning, uh, that, you, uh, that you would speak to us. Lord, would you uh, draw us deeper into connection with our own hearts, and through that, Lord, deeper into connection with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we've got to talk about to begin to wrap our minds and our hearts around this prayer is the context of the prayer itself. And what you've got to know is that in Jesus' day, uh, the idea of evil was standard kind of mental furniture in the way that people understood their world. It's well documented in the Old Testament. It comes out in the New Testament that evil is a well-documented part of the mental furniture that people kind of carried around with them when they engaged the world. And that wasn't just true in Jesus' specific context and culture. That has been true kind of across human history. That this idea of evil as a force that's actively at work in the world has been a consistent part of humans' worldviews uh, since the beginning of humanity. But that is not true for us here in the 21st century, is it? That the idea of talking about evil, uh, it can seem kind of passe, quaint, even ignorant. And we prefer to locate the struggles of the world uh, in other realms. Like for us, most of the problems that we encounter, we assume are psychological, right? That when we encounter a barrier, we, when we encounter something wrong with the world, that the way that we see that that, that can be dealt with is, is uh, through psychology, that it's, it's a psychological problem. The other kind of main realm that we use to understand our problems is the political realm. And almost every conflict that you experience in your life, that the way that we in, engage and approach the world is that all of, all of the hardship can be kind of broken down into uh, issues in one of those two categories. That everything is either psychological or it's political. And those are two very real ways of understanding the brokenness of our world, absolutely. But when those are our only ways of understanding the brokenness of the world, we have a very flat or a very one-dimensional perspective on what's actually wrong. This just stands out to me in such a striking way uh, in the TV show Shrinking, which is a TV show about three uh, counselors or psychologists and their <laughs> fairly messy lives, okay? Uh, and I was reading a review of it this week by a woman, Jen Cheney, and she says this. She says, shrinking is a comedy about feelings, people grappling with their own and hurting those of others and talking about it all incessantly. She says, watching shrinking is like hosting an energetic guest who overstays their welcome, who after a couple of hours of listening to them chatter endlessly about their own problems and the problems of other people that are definitely none of their business, you kind of need a break. That is my experience of life sometimes. Is it ever your experience of life? That we become so, we're so good at talking about and diagnosing our problems and everyone else's problems that we can talk about it incessantly and we all need a break from that. That's one, that's one perspective on what is broken with our world but it doesn't cover all of it because it, count, it can't account for all of the brokenness in the world. 
Like, think about the evil that we see on a daily basis playing out around us. Like, think about uh, the genocide that we see play out in our world. Like, what happened in Rwanda uh, over a decade ago, where within four months, five to eight million people were killed by their fellow countrymen? That's more than a psychological problem. It's more than a political problem. There is evil at work in the world. And the scriptures are bold to call us into recognizing, to opening our eyes, to waking up to the context that we live in. A world that's plagued by evil. When we talk about evil, we're talking about forces that are opposed to God and his kingdom, that are opposed to truth and beauty and goodness in the world. See, evil is rarely uh, as easy to spot, is rarely easy to spot. Because what's true about evil is evil is not able to create anything on its own. It's not generative. But all evil can do is take something good and twist it. But what evil knows is that you don't have to twist it a lot to take something good and, and, and push it off course. Like, imagine with me that, you, that you're getting into an airplane, and as you're getting on, the pilot comes over the intercom, and he says, hey, just want to let you know we're having some technical issues. Our compass doesn't work super well. But it, like, works mostly well. It's just, like, a few degrees off, like five or so. But don't worry, we'll get there anyway. Are you going to stay on that plane? No, because you're not going to get where you, where you need to go. Because being off by just a little bit over a long period of time creates this very wide divergence. That's what evil does, is it bends something ever so slightly away from what is good, and when you fall that out over a long time, uh, it ends up bringing death and destruction. And the scripture wakes us up to the fact that there's evil at work in the, in the world, and that evil is always pulling at us. It's got almost like a magnetic field. It's, it's drawing us to participate with it. That's what we call temptation. That's what Scripture calls temptation. It's this pulling out from under God and his authority, out of his kingdom, into and under the authority of this force that's opposed, that's taking what's good and bending it ever so slightly. And that's the context for us this morning of this prayer. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Lord, deliver us from evil. These petitions are tools for the, for the context of a world that is full of evil and where we constantly face temptation. They're weapons. These prayers are weapons for that battle. They're the cry of a person. These petitions are the cry of a person or the cry of a people who are aiming in the midst of a world that is full of darkness to create beauty. That's the cry of these prayers. They're the cry of a heart that in the middle of the darkness, that in the middle of the evil are set on, are, are committed to creating and, and stewarding beauty out into the world. For a whole generation of us, uh, when we think about temptation, the thing that we think about most often is sexual sin. Did any of you grow up in the church and experience that? That when you talk about temptation, that's like the thing. So when you hear this prayer, Lord, lead us not into temptation, that, that maybe what it pulls up in you is uh, the picture of, of yourself, of someone else, right, of uh, being alone with your phone, your computer, when you're feeling sad or angry or lonely. 
And like that is the context for this prayer. And for some people, that's like the only context in which we can think about temptation. No, guys, this prayer is so much bigger than that. The battle against sin, oh, it's so much bigger than that. That what God is calling us into, it's so much more than us just saying no to a few certain behaviors. That, that what is true about us, and we've talked about this throughout this prayer, is that it starts with uh, our Father. And what we talked about in that sermon way back is that to call God Father is to recognize that uh, we are a people who have been seen by a God who is seeing us. We see the one who is seeing us. That's what it means to call God Father. And that when our God sees us, he looks on us and he loves us. That when we look at him, what we see is beauty. We see the face of Jesus who has come for us because he found us beautiful and has come for us to make us beautiful. And because we are a people who have been caught up in that beauty, when we look at his face, what we say is we want to participate in seeing that beauty brought out into the world. And we become artists, co-creating along with God out in the world. And God's commands... They're the framework in which we steward that beauty, in which we exercise our creativity. They're handholds for us in what it looks like to lead a beautiful life. So when we pray, Lord, uh, keep us far from, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we're praying, God, keep our eyes set on what is beautiful. Lord, would would you keep us focused? Would you keep us moving toward building a life that's beautiful? And creating a work of beauty, uh, it takes a lot of time, doesn't it? It also costs a lot of money. No, not a lot of money. That's not getting to the illustration. It also costs a lot, okay? Like when you think about renovations in your home, I've been told that uh, there are three things you can have in a renovation. Quality work, uh, fast work, and work that's cheap. But you can't have all three. You can only ever have two. And when we're talking about creating something beautiful, we're talking about creating something of quality, which means it's going to be costly. There's no way around that. I think about my own very limited experience in home renovations, which mostly extends to painting, okay? When, uh, when, when I was first married, we were in this rental house that was rented to us by a midtowner, and uh, what I'll say about the dining room is that it was a beautiful shade of eggplant, And we were very committed to not living with that, to doing something else beautiful with the room, okay? So we picked out this nice, neutral, like gray-blue color. And I, sp- I, can't, I don't even know how many hours I spent on painting this room because I didn't have kids, so I had all the time in the world. So I'm like taping off every piece of trim around every window. And I had read somewhere that Steve Jobs was like so passionate about the inside of the Mac also being beautiful that I was dedicated to painting every part of that room, even the parts that couldn't be seen, to make them beautiful. It took a long time. As my wife reminded me when I was bouncing this illustration off her last night, way longer than it needed to. Okay, fine, I'm slow, right? That's okay. But the point is that doing something beautiful, it takes time. It's costly. And what evil is doing, the temptation that evil is always offering us, it's always offering us off-ramps. It's always offering us shortcuts. It's saying there are ways that you can get to something beautiful, but it's not going to take as long as you think it is. Yeah, you can get to something beautiful, but it's not going to cost you as much as you think it is. That's what temptation is always doing. Like, for example, do you want deep connection in your life? 
I see a few minor nods. Yes. Do any of you want to experience deep connection in your life, right? Okay. That's a hard thing to find, though, isn't it? It takes a lot of time with people and a lot of risks. But you know what, the, you know what one of the best shortcuts is? Gossip. That if we can get together and we can talk about someone else's problem, oh, it makes us feel so close. But that's false intimacy, right? It's a shortcut. It's a way, it's, it's an off-ramp toward that journey of creating something beautiful that takes time and effort and costs us something and finding a quicker way to get to it. Like a beautiful life is a generous life, right? Oh, yes, of course. We all want that. We all like the idea of being generous people, don't we? Maybe not. Okay, yeah. Everyone likes the idea of being generous. Okay, but then like, then it comes down to, but then I actually have to give something. Like my money or my time. And if I'm giving something, it's especially true with time. If you're being generous with your time, uh, that means that you're not giving it to something that you would rather do. The cost of that is high, isn't it? And it's painful. So what we prefer to do is give just a little bit enough to make ourselves feel generous without actually having to pay the cost, right? That's the shortcut. We all want to lead lives of influence where where what we do and who we are matters in the world. And that's that's a long process of walking faithfully with God and with the people around us. But there are so many shortcuts there, like fear or manipulation or shame, right, as a way of gaining influence on other people. All of those off-ramps, all of those temptations, what they lead us toward is is to sin, away from God, away from what is beautiful and good and true, into participating with what is evil in the world. The list could go on and on and on. So when we pray, God, lead us not into temptation, we're addressing that very real pull that we feel all the time to take those offerings. And what we're acknowledging is that on our own, we are very weak people. That those offerings are so easy to take that I'm drawn toward them. I want to take them. And when we say, Lord, lead us not into temptation, what we're saying is, Lord, don't abandon me. Lord, would you be a faithful guide as I walk toward what is good and beautiful and true? And that word temptation is very hard to translate because the Greek word that shows up in our New Testament, uh, it's the word that we use for trial. It's the word we use for temptation. It's the word we use for test. So it kind of has this wide, pretty wide meaning. So narrowing it in here, I'll just read you what one of the commentators I read this week said. He said, lead us not into temptation does not imply don't bring us to the place of temptation or don't allow us to be tempted because God's spirit has already done both of these with Jesus. The spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Nor does, it, nor does the cause imply don't tempt us because God has promised never to do that anyway. That's what James tells us, that God never tempts anyone. Rather, in light of the probable Aramaic understanding of Jesus' prayer, these words seem best taken as don't let us succumb to temptation or don't abandon us to temptation. That this is the cry of a heart that is saying, God, would you lead me? Would you be a faithful shepherd as I am following you through this, through, through this landscape that is barren and desolate, that has so many opportunities for danger and destruction? Lord, would you walk with me? Would you protect me? Would you keep me from those things? Lead me not into temptation because I know how weak I am. That's, that, that's the cry of this prayer. 
That's a cry that is well fitted to the way that we experience life, isn't it? Lord, I want what's good and beautiful and true. I want to participate with it. But God, I see all of these off-ramps. Lord, do not lead me into temptation. Do not abandon me. Be a good guide. And then in the petition, there's this word, but, this disjunctive. Uh, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's kind of the other side of the same petition. And what it acknowledges, but deliver us from evil, is that in this world that we live in, uh, that is so often, where evil is so often around us, uh, that that evil pulls us toward despair. That we experience the weight of evil around us all the time and that it can bring us to despair. It can feel debilitating, can't it? That when we, when we are mired uh, in deep depression, when we feel stuck, when, there's, when the joy seems to have leaked out of our lives, all that, that's, that's, in a sense, us experiencing the evil that is around us, that is pulling at us. When we are crying out to God because of the desires of our hearts and what we feel like we hear from God is silence. And what that silence whispers, what we hear in the silence is God doesn't love you. God's not for you. God has abandoned you. That's evil, right? It's pulling at us. Say, God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, saying, God, would you rescue me? The evil of this world, that sits so heavy on me. It sits so heavy on us, and we don't have what it takes to persevere through the midst of that. God, would you come and would you carry me when we can't walk any further, when I can't walk any further? I can think of a, a, this, this picture of my own life, of this moment with the Lord of saying, God, if this is about me holding on to you tight enough, I can't do it. But in that place, God, would you hold on to me? You guys know that place. This prayer is fitted for that place. It's a tool for that place. God, deliver us from evil. And what you've got to hear there is that these these prayers, uh, these prayers are normative for the Christian life. That when you were in a place where you were crying out, God, God, lead me not into temptation because I'm feeling tempted. God, would you rescue me from evil because I'm feeling it close in on me? That there is nothing unusual happening in your life. This is so normal. That doesn't, that's not to minimize it, but to say there's nothing to be ashamed of there. Jesus has given us tools exactly for those places anticipating that they would come because of his kindness for us, because of his compassion he knows we're going to be there. He says, I want to give you what you need in that place. And friends, when we, pray those, when we pray those prayers, we can be confident that God will answer us. Always. We can pray those prayers with confidence because our Jesus has already defeated the darkness. Evil has already lost at the cross and through the resurrection. What happened in, the, in that moment, and this is how some of the early kind of church fathers describe what happened at the cross, that evil saw its opportunity. 
that it recognized that in Jesus, something new had come into the world and evil saw its opportunity and it opened up its jaws and it snatched him at the cross and it took him down to the grave. But in that moment, evil had overplayed its hand. It had become overly confident. And that right when it thought that it had, it had swallowed up our Jesus in victory, when it, it thought that the darkness had finally closed in over the light, after three days, what did our Jesus do? He rose up. And that what he declared is that the power of the grave has no power over us anymore. And here's what Jesus did that none of us has, have ever done, what no human has ever done, is that Jesus was able to withstand temptation as he walked on this world as, in this world as human. We alluded to it earlier when Jesus is driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. That over and over again, what is happening in, that, in those 40 days where Jesus has gone without food and without water is that evil has come to him and has said, just take the shortcut. Yeah, you're destined to, to rule over the world. Just worship me instead and you'll get there a lot faster and you won't have to go through the cross. Faster, less suffering. Take these stones and make them bread. Right, is, is recognizing Jesus was hungry. He like felt what it meant to be hungry. And the, the, the evil was saying to him, if you, would, if you would just exercise your power, if you would take the shortcut, if you would not trust God and just make these stones of bread, you could deal with it like that. And over and over again, in the face of these temptations, Jesus chooses the way that is good and true and beautiful that costs him something and is ultimately so painful for him. And he did that for you. Because of his great love for you, which is why, because Jesus had resisted that temptation, that when, when evil swallowed him up, that rather than holding him, he, he rose above it. He conquered it. What Colossians 2 tells us is that in that moment, Jesus humiliated evil. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he's talking about powers of spiritual darkness, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That he triumphed over the darkness. And because of that ultimate triumph, we can be confident now when we bring our request to be delivered from temptation to God. This is how Hebrews talks about it. This is Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. It says, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us, and this is the key part, okay? Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author of Hebrews is saying, in, in the places that you feel tempted, when you feel overcome with evil, when we are tempted to feel shame and let that drive us away from God, what the author of Hebrews is saying is, no, in that moment, come to God and come with confidence knowing that what your Jesus delights to do is to meet you in that place, to give you the grace and the mercy that you need to help you in your time of need. Maybe as you hear that, you were thinking of all the times you have been fighting against temptation and that uh, the battle has gone the other way. And you've taken the off-ramp. Right? And that can be a place of so much weight and guilt and shame for us that again, it drives us away from ever praying these prayers. And, and, and friends, they're, they're still true. 
that even in those places, Jesus is saying, don't, don't let that hold you back. No, come to me. Come to me and find the power that you need, the grace that you need, the mercy that you need to find help in your time of need. To create something good and beautiful and true with me. And the promise of the gospel is that even in those places where we have taken the off-ramp, that even those things Jesus can redeem. Right? That, he, that, w- that when we turn back to him, Lord, when we, when we repent is what, that, uh, what the theological word for that is. When we say, God, I'm sorry for taking the off-ramp. I'm, I'm back on. Right? Jesus promises he scoops all of those things up and along with us, he is dedicated to making something beautiful even in those places. But that is the, that's the power of the gospel at work uh, in us, in our broken and messy stories. That's the power that we're calling on when we pray these petitions. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's us moving into this battle in our daily lives, in our own hearts. And what it means is that there's actually the potential for us uh, to experience change in our stories. Friends, that's good news, isn't it? That the power of Jesus, that it, it meets us and it's, it's for the broken and the desperate places in our stories, the places where we feel evil closing in on us. We can pray those prayers with the confidence that we will be delivered, that God will provide a way of escape from temptation is what he tells us in 1 Corinthians. And the confidence that we have there is that the battle has already been won at the cross and we look forward to the day where we will experience the freedom of that ultimately. This is such a weird part of the Christian life that the battle has been won, the ultimate defeat has been guaranteed but we live in the midst of the battle that's ongoing. You know what it's like? It's like being at a Vanderbilt football game, okay? Okay, and here's, I mean, we, we had to bring it up for a second, okay, because we had been snorkeling or we had been scuba diving for a while. So here's what you, know, you need to know about a Vanderbilt football game is that, first of all, Vanderbilt always loses, which I can say because I'm a Vanderbilt fan, okay? Uh, and the game is always lost by the end of the first half. It's guaranteed. It's, it's done. It's over, right? But what Vanderbilt will, and yes, I am comparing Vanderbilt to evil in this story, so just hang with me, okay? But what Vanderbilt will always do is it will always give you a little bit of hope, like, they'll fight back, right? They'll score a touchdown. They'll be right at the, right at the end zone, and then they'll throw an interception in the games. It's, you're like, right, we lost back at halftime. But you can become emotionally invested in the fact that it might go the other way. Okay, <laughs> if you've been a Vanderbilt fan, you know, okay? That is what happens in our battle against evil so often, is that the, the outcome of the game has already been guaranteed, but we get so emotionally invested, and of course we do. There's no shame there in the ups and downs of the last half of the game. Yeah, the battle is still being fought, but the victory has been guaranteed. We can have confidence in that. That as we bring our prayers to the Lord, Lord, deliver us from temptation, God. Uh, or d- lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That we can have confidence, not only that he will meet us now, but there will be a day when we experience that deliverance fully when we're free from the draw of temptation in our lives and where evil has no place in the world anymore. As we pray these prayers in our daily lives, we look forward to that future and that hope that's coming. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite the band to come up. Uh, 
And as, uh, but before they play this next song, I'm just going to give you a chance to pray quietly on your own for a minute. And I want you to, I'm going to prompt you to, to use this petition as a doorway deeper into prayer. To ask God, uh, to ask God for, for aid in the places that you are feeling tempted in your own life. In the places that you feel the, the off-ramps to take a shortcut to avoid the suffering that it, that it takes to walk uh, toward creating beauty in your life, would you bring those things to God and ask him to meet you in there, to provide you there, not to abandon you there? Then the places in your life that you feel evil closing in on you, uh, would you cry out to God to meet you there? And would you do it with the confidence that he will? So God, as we bring these requests to you, Jesus, we pray that you would meet us. We trust you to do that work uh, as we bring our hearts to you.